yet know like the world we're preparing our students for. So given that, what do they need to be equipped with? I'd say that being able to know who they are and have a sense of agency and to be an active member of their community are all key things that we want them to walk away with. Welcome to the Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with Mina Srinivasan. Mina is an author and educator with deep expertise in the fields of social and emotional learning and mindfulness and education. She's founding director of Transformative Educational Leadership, a program for educational leaders that are integrating mindfulness programs into their schools. And she's also author of a number of articles and books on mindfulness and social emotional learning, including Teach, Breathe, Learn, Mindfulness in and Out of the Classroom. In our conversation, we discuss the relationship between social emotional learning and mindful education the mental health crisis of COVID and particular forms of stress that educators are facing right now, the difference between mindfulness as path versus mindfulness as a tool in education, and also the relationship between identity, social emotional learning, and trauma. I've been wanting to interview Mina for a while now, given the unique challenges that so many educators are facing in the classroom. And as you'll hear, Mina also brings an international perspective to her work, even though she's often working with U.S. educators. I think the episode will be relevant both to people who are bringing mindfulness into classrooms, but also any of you who are interested in social emotional learning and how this relates to trauma and mindfulness. So without further delay, here's Mina Srinivasan. I'm here with Mina Srinivasan. Mina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, David. It's wonderful to be here with you. Wonderful to reconnect in this way. Totally. I know you're holding a lot of different pieces right now. And so just really appreciate you taking the time and was looking forward to this. You know, we've been talking about this for a while to be talking about trauma, mindfulness, social, emotional learning, all the different pieces that you're holding. And then also when we were talking offline about all your work with Thich Nhat Hanh, over the years and really being in that lineage and then his passing, it just felt like it's a really timely conversation to get to be in with you. So I will have given a little bit of an intro, but I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about yourself here. What would you want people to know um, as we get into this conversation? First and foremost, I am a lifelong educator. And I think what's unique about my path as an educator and an educational leader is that it's been completely integrated with my spiritual life from the start. And, you know, I'll never forget my first ever teaching job. So, uh, well, I actually never thought I would become an educator. So when I graduated from college, I had deferred a job in New York um, at the ABC network. And I was going to have my, like my year of uh, exploration post-college. And I took a job teaching at an American international school in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Oh, wow. And um, the required professional learning was reading Parker Palmer's The Courage to Teach. And if any of you um, are not yet familiar with, with Parker Palmer's work, I mean, his work has had a huge influence on my life, but a major takeaway from that book was, you know, we teach who we are. And so at the same time, I was in Brazil and people would say to me, well, say Indiana, teach me about yoga, teach me about, you know, meditation. 
And I did have a spiritual childhood and a spiritual upbringing, but I also like grew up in New Jersey playing soccer. And, you know, (laughs) so when folks would come up to me and say, you know, you're Indian, teach me about, you know, uh, yoga and spirituality. It was, it caught me a little off guard because that definitely wasn't my reality in the States growing up. And in Brazil, in addition to having this, like this, really powerful experience of being introduced to Parker's work and really falling in love with teaching and teaching really calling me into the profession. I was in this environment that was was really nurturing opportunity for me to reflect on, you know, what is my life about and why am I here? You know, up until that point as a child of immigrants, my parents came to the United States in the late 60s and the early 70s from India. Um, I think for a lot of children of immigrants, there's this emphasis on, you know, making it. Like, you know, my dad came with $200 to this country. Mm-hmm. But that making it, you know, because you're coming from a particular context of, in my case, you know, more scarcity, my my familial context and coming here and, and making it had a very narrow kind of vision of what making it and what success was. And so after I graduated from college, you know, having this opportunity to be in Brazil, explore Parker's work, but to also be in an environment where people are not living to work, but working to live created the conditions for me to have a deeper exploration. And that's when I'd say a deeper spiritual awakening happened for me. Could you talk about your assessment? How are you doing and how are you seeing teachers doing in this particular moment, two years into the pandemic? And Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, here's a, here's a connection to, to mindfulness and what does mindfulness need to mean now in our multiple interlocking pandemic context, you know? And I think for me, we're at a critical juncture. And, you know, I was just with a school district this morning and, you know, the the students are not well and the teachers are not well. And, um, you know, there is this, all of a sudden, if you look at like the data around the prioritization of social and emotional learning, particularly among adolescents, like it's, it's blown up <laughs> since March of 2021. Um, and at the same time, it feels like um, it's more of a band-aid rather than um, really trying to step back and and um, and think deeply about like what are we doing and what is this about? And I, I think, you know, mindfulness in particular, when I think about it in my life and, you know, one of my teachers, um, Larry Ward, he talks about mindfulness as um, enhancing our nervous system so we can hold greater complexity and uncertainty. And I feel like that's what educators are being called to do among many other things, but to hold, uh, and all of us, but I think, you know, educators in general, because, you know, we've had to um, grapple with so much uncertainty in terms of how, you know, we instruct in terms of our health. I mean, everything that's going on with, you know, the culture wars, it's with school boards around masking, around vaccine. Um, and so, uh, the whole field of education is, um, I think being called to reassess and also, um, being called to cultivate a much deeper capacity for 
for holding all that's unfolding in our world right now. This is something I've been really curious about around education and being at a mindful education conference, for example, that there's been discussion. I think this is actually where we met a bunch of years ago. There was a conversation about where mindfulness could be useful, but the tendency at times that mindfulness programs in the classroom could end up feeling uh, somewhat like a band-aid, but also as a disciplinary measure, as a way really to kind of enforce. So I can only imagine the different needs that are happening right now, where there's just, uh, as you said, teachers being unwell, students not being well. How do you navigate that within, in education where to, to bring in a program that's exactly as you're saying, in increasing capacity to be with complexity in a moment where I'm imagining teachers also do need the Band-Aids? and are just looking for, you know, give me anything that will actually help here. I think it's um, a both-and approach, mm -hmm. which we often <laughs> talk about. Yeah, know, totally. like, this morning, I offered some of those evidence-based practices, but also it was within this, this larger understanding around what mindfulness needs to mean now. And, you know, you mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh, and I think, you know, gosh, so many... Um, contributions um, his his life has had to the world, but I think of just his insight of interbeing. And for me, that is a fundamental aspect of mindfulness. And that's often lost in our kind of modern Western um, mindfulness and education programs. And for those of you who are tuning in and this term interbeing is new, you know, essentially interbeing honors interdependence of all of all things you know and it means to interdependently coexist and um one of Thich Nhat Hanh or Thai as his students call him his um his uh his writings um he wrote that if you were a poet um and you look deeply at the sheet of paper you'd see the cloud floating in the sheet of paper without the cloud there'd be no rain without the rain there'd be no trees without the trees, there'd be no paper. And if you look deeply enough, you'd see that there's a logger who cut down the trees and the logger's ancestors as well in that sheet of paper. And so practicing mindfulness in a way that, that cultivates our awareness of interbeing, I think is really calling us to shift from this rather transactional way of being in the world to this interbeing consciousness. And I feel like when we practice in that particular way, the um, opportunity for real healing and transformation is exponential. Because, you know, the way in which a lot of mindfulness programming is brought into schools, I think aside from um, the C learning work, at least that I'm familiar of that's coming out of Emory, um, hasn't necessarily included that systems level component. And I think that's a, a really essential piece. And I think another critical piece too, when we think about, at least when I think about the lineage that I'm rooted in is the emphasis on Sangha or community and how that's often also lost in our kind of Western individualistic context. And so that too being an integral part of how we're sharing these, these, these practices from these wisdom traditions in, in, in a way that has more integrity and fullness. Can you connect the dots for people who are newer to this conversation between mindfulness and SEL in education and even how you might see that 
kind of the best case scenario in this moment of SEL and mindfulness in the classroom, given the, the stress that so many are facing? For sure. And I'd say that, you know, what's been really unique about my path is that I started in the mindfulness and education world and then came into SEL. So just a little bit, you know, about my story in terms of, um, you know, I was a classroom teacher for many years. And during it was during that time that I got connected with the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh and actually was part of one of the first ever retreats he offered for educators. Um, and it changed my life, you know, forever. And after that was really on this path of being being part of um, kind of the, the early, early phases of the movement. And um, I also had this experience of, you know, I spent ages 26 to 31 living in India um, and being part of the mindfulness and education movement there, uh, which probably would have to do a whole other separate podcast about um, uh, and then coming to the States and, and connecting, you know, with, with folks here. And uh, right at the time that my first book was coming out, one of my mentors, um, Linda Lantieri, who I know you've met, who's really one of the founders of the, of the field of social and emotional learning, um, said to me, you know, they're really, they're trying to hire for this position in Oakland and they're having a really tough time finding the right person. And the role was to be part of this innovative team that was implementing social and emotional learning system-wide through the Oakland Unified School District in partnership with an organization called CASEL, the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning, which is really the nation's leading organization when it comes to research policy and practice um, around SEL. And this initiative involved, at the time, eight school districts. And it started with a research question, and it was, we, we know that we can implement SEL at the school level, but what does it mean to implement it in a large, complex urban school district? And so that was a, was a really powerful experience for me, and for five and a half years of my life, um, was doing the systemic implementation work. And um, I would say that mindfulness is an integral part of social and emotional learning. I believe it has to be particularly about adult SEL. Can you define SEL? Sure. What would be your, yeah, your working definition of it? Yes. My definition would be the essential skills we need for life success. Just that. Yes. <laughs> essential skills. So there are many frameworks out there. The framework that um, people are most familiar with these days is the one from Castle which um, there are five core competencies, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. And um, if, you, if you map them onto mindfulness, there's a lot of overlap. Um, now, it depends on how you're defining mindfulness, though, right? So um, depending on your definition, you might believe. So those, those competencies, self-awareness and self-management, those are our intrapersonal skills, Social awareness, relationship skills are interpersonal skills and responsible decision-making is seen as sort of um, um, the integration of the interpersonal and the interpersonal. And so depending on how some people define mindfulness rather narrowly and say it only exists in the intrapersonal skills of SEL, um, I have a much broader definition and I see a lot of overlap and I see mindfulness, the practices of mindfulness as a way to really um, to really deepen and strengthen SEL. And I'll just give you a, a specific example. Instead of like just learning about emotions, mindfulness helps us understand and feel what the emotions are and 
in our body and really can um, deepen our, our skills and capacity for self-regulation. So there's a lot of um, uh, alignment with both of these fields and they are separate fields. And if we think about the research in each field, so um, the field of social emotional learning has been around for more than 25 years and there's a tremendous body of research to back it up. And SEL or mindfulness is newer, mindfulness and education. And um, some would say that mindfulness uh, in education is sort of um, under-researched and over-claimed um, have been some, some of the criticisms about it. And when we think about um, the amount of research that we have or where we are in terms of what we know, we're sort of in the more uh, maybe early adolescence phase in social-emotional learning and in more of like maybe the early childhood phase in um in mindfulness. And what I mean by that is like just where we are in the trajectory, not that we have research in those particular <laughs> exclusively in those areas, but just to give us a sense of like where they compare on the spectrum of like how long they've been around and what we actually know. And there's a lot that we're trying to still figure out and don't know in either field. And um, to add on to that too, in, um, in the past few years, there's been deeper looking in the fields of both mindfulness and SEL, but I'll speak to the, to the SEL work in particular. Um, you know, for many years, social emotional learning was thought to be race and culture neutral, but we know nothing is race and culture neutral. And there has been this real movement towards um, uh, what's now being called transformative social and emotional learning um, and incorporating these equity focal constructs. So, for example, when we're talking about self-awareness, um, when we're really holding that equity focal construct in place, we're going to also lift up identity. And so really thinking about the ways in which our identity um, can, can not only, um, you know, depending on, depending on our background, um, be, be a source of just really um, uh, developing a sense of, of like who our ancestors are, are and how that informs how we walk in the world. And obviously, depending on your context, you know, how your identity relates to the privilege and power you hold in each situation. And so there's a, there's movement. Um, and I go over it a lot more in my course around um, this kind of evolution that we're seeing in the field of social and emotional learning. What was it like to be in Oakland during those years? I'm so struck that you were right inside of a very particular moment of as the field is burgeoning and and this uh, piece around not just individual but also looking at SEL in a more systemic way what was that like be what did you learn and and um i'm curious how you're thinking about it now yeah well it was um great training ground because we were trying to figure things mm. out and i was part of a community of practice with other school districts who were also trying to figure things out um, and I'd say that there were a couple of couple of key things that that came of this experience. Um, the first was that from the start in Oakland, we knew that the SEL work had to be integral to the equity work in the district. And that was not the case with a lot of the other districts. But obviously, given the culture and context of Oakland, we knew that from the start. And so um, even when we're thinking about these competencies like self-awareness, we'd be thinking about things that like, oh, well, at what age um, does someone really recognize internalized depression? You know, like we were really digging into, into these questions in our work. 
And there's been some some significant, I think, um, contributions to the to the larger field as a result, even moving um, some of the national work. And this is early. This is bef- this is like I'm talking like 2012. Um, and so before this was really on everyone's radar. Um, another, um, you know, key kind of outcome from um, this time was I was specifically focusing on implementation in middle and high schools. And what I saw is there was a real dearth of resources out there around SEL for middle and high. There's a lot for younger kids, but we know that social emotional learning within the secondary context is very different and particularly with adolescents and the same for mindfulness. And so um, I actually wrote a book um, that came out of this experience, my second book called Integrating Social and Emotional Learning with Instruction in Secondary Classrooms, because um, there are many different um, ways in which you can implement social emotional learning. But one of the challenges with um, with middle and high school in particular is um, you have several teachers, right? But several different subjects. And so what, um, what I was really digging into and what the research has now confirmed is the importance of integrating social and emotional learning with academic instruction. And so that book was really a roadmap for how to do that based on kind of the on-the-ground work in Oakland with a lot of teachers. And then I'd say the third um, outcome of this experience um, was I really saw how um, schools that had leadership that truly embodied these social and emotional competencies were way more effective in implementing social and emotional learning um, than schools that didn't. And that really influenced um, my decision to join my colleagues, Linda and Daniel Rechtstaffen, who I know is a good friend of yours, um, in co-founding Transformative Educational Leadership. And so Transformative Educational Leadership, also known as TEL, was founded in um, early 2018 And it was really focused on filling a gap in the field of really supporting leaders and not just school principals or superintendents, but um, those who have, um, you know, a circle of influence in in the social and emotional learning and mindfulness and equity work in their district that are really, you know, doing the doing the implementation. And it focused on integrating leadership, equity, social, emotional learning, and mindfulness in service of, of, of systems transformation. And so um, we're launching our third cohort now. We've had two cohorts. And so if any of you are interested in learning more, uh, it's a year-long fellowship. You can um, you can check out teleadership.org. Um, but one of the things I wanted to mention is that we made a decision um, uh, to really, in our first cohort, to have a, at least 40% leaders of color and our second cohort was 60% leaders of color. And as an organization, we've made a commitment for the fellowship to be at least 50% leaders of color, if not, you know, majority, global majority. And that's been really important because um, when we look at um, the data, you know, about 80% of our school leaders are white identified and like more than 50% of them don't feel equipped to supporting kids of color. And so we really felt it was important to not only um, prioritize having a, um, a, a, a majority global majority or at least 50% global majority um, community of fellows, but um, we also felt that it was important to support white leaders 
uh, as well and being able to do the work that has to be done to um, really create um, compassionate, equitable environments in our schools for all kids. I imagine this is tricky. This is a tricky place to navigate a bit of a high wire in some ways of yeah. how to do this really well. Is that fair? Very fair. Very fair. And I think we've learned a lot and I, and we're now actually going through a really exciting redesign and, um, you know, the, the original focus on integrating these fields of mindfulness and social emotional learning, equity and leadership, which were really siloed at the time, you know, but now we've seen a lot of work. You know, I talked about the, the SEL and equity work that has been coming out of Castle. Um, but it also feels like these terms, um, for these fields like mindfulness, equity, social, emotional learning, that, that they feel kind of anemic, like they're without the life force, um, uh, that, um, that really describes, um, what's needed to be done now. You know, when we started tell it was, it was pre pandemic. Um, and, um, you know, we're in our kind of, um, our current multiple interlocking pandemic context, um, we're really moving towards just shifting our focus, um, not necessarily away from integrating those fields, but but there's this desire to like, you know, instead of social emotional learning to move towards a more healing centered, you know, focus in our schools instead of equity, liberation, instead of mindfulness, contemplative wisdom. And, um, and within that also recognizing that so much of the wisdom comes from the relationships that we have with each other in this beloved community. I have a question about equity um, and identity, given that you've been working so hard, I imagine, with Intel. And I'd love to hear about the lessons that you've learned about. That's just a huge commitment to take on around um, the, the makeup of the group. But I saw a picture over the weekend of Thich Nhat Hanh and Martin Luther King. And I was reminded about just how radical in many ways Thich Nhat Hanh was. And I'd actually love to hear more about the fact that's, that you were um, one of the early cohorts around teaching. I didn't actually know that Thich Nhat Hanh was involved in mindful education in that way. My sense is the community has a deep vision around social justice. And then I was thinking about King and it's a place that I've been in my own just struggle uh, around identity where, you know, I feel like one of King's messages was around um, that there wouldn't, there would be a time where racial identity wouldn't hold, um, wouldn't matter as much as it did, that there would be a, a cer- certain colorblindness, which is in some many ways a radioactive term when we talk about it. So... I hear that there was an aspiration for a certain level of equality. And then there's a moment where uh, in equity work, we're often often focusing on identity and looking at power dynamics. And it seems really tricky to be doing that with youth or around education and questions of when do we start talking about this? When do kids start realizing the differences? So I noticed I've been in my own uh, struggle or inquiry around when focusing on identity is actually in service of equity and liberation, and when focusing on identity ends up feeling harmful and negatively impacting groups where there isn't a collective move towards justice or a sense of um, being together as a community, of the beloved community. So it's a place that I'm just, there feels like a natural tension. 
And I'm wondering how you, especially given your work with Thich Nhat Hanh, around beloved community, and how does this all fit together for you uh, around identity in this particular moment? Yeah, well, thank you for um, for for the question. And the first thing I'd say is that one of the last Dharma talks at Thich Nhat Hanh came was he, he mentioned his commitment to the beloved community and his commitment to Dr. King. And so there was, while they only met twice, um, there was um, deep spiritual friendship there. And, um, you know, the the Tiepian or the, the order of interbeing lineage that I'm a part of, um, it is very much about creating the conditions for collective awakening. And I'd say um, for me, what has been a really important practice to hold is holding both the relative dimension and the ultimate dimension simultaneously. And so there is the ultimate dimension where, you know, I had the, I've had spiritual experiences of like tangible non-duality, David, where like you're an extension of me and I'm an extension of you. And like having had a taste of that ultimate dimension is so powerful and reminds me of the greater truths that lie um, uh, uh, beneath my, my, you know, relative existence. Um, and at the same time, you know, where we get into trouble, right, is when we try to spiritually bypass, like, hey, we're all, <laughs> you know, we're all one. And it's like, oh, well, you know, my experience is really different from yours. And I'm really aware, too, with my particular identity um, as an Indian American woman, um, as a non-Black woman of color, that my role is to ease the burden um, uh, off of my, my, my Black and Indigenous brothers and sisters, and really anyone who is othered more than myself. And so this is part of that, like the, the deep self-awareness and social awareness that comes through um, the adult social emotional learning work and the mindfulness work um, is really being able to hold both the ultimate dimension and the relative dimension simultaneously and knowing when to lean in to which one. And that's where I think... Um, the practice is key because that's our guide, you know? Um, so I think, you know, where we can get into trouble is when we only focus on the relative dimension and we don't focus on the ultimate dimension, but it's got to be, it's got to be both. There's got to be a, a holding of both, particularly um, when you're, we're trying to create the beloved community mm -hmm. and create these brave, inspiring multiracial spaces. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the frame because it seems like an, that could be an ongoing, if there's an agreement, for example, in a group uh, of leaders, that that frame between the ultimate and relative holds water, that then there could be an assessment in any moment, where do we need to lean? Is it a moment, yeah. as you said, did we go too far this way? And that's a dy that's dynamic. I think that's a very challenging thing. That there's just not a textbook that just lists how to do it because it will be different for every group of people that you're working yeah, with. And well, and that's what, you know, I'm realizing with this next iteration of tell is it's the real learning is like the emergent wisdom in the room. It's, it's the work that we're doing together in the moment. Like, all right, are we leaning in here? Do we go there? And it's really generating that collective wisdom and that collective wisdom is the guide. And so as an organization, while we're very young, we've 
we've evolved tremendously from this like, let's integrate mindfulness, SEL, and equity and leadership to like, no, you know, we're about liberation and we're about, you know, cultivating, you know, our our um, capacity for like great compassion um, and engaging in these powerful contemplative practices. Um, but the real wisdom is the experience that is unfolding in the room right now with all of us together. It makes me think of needs, uh, of being able to assess the needs of a person or a group, which I imagine educators are doing all the time. And earlier you talked about um, suffering that ties peace about uh, that I'm I'm tuning in to the suffering or how would, how did you say it? That I'm understanding the suffering mm-hmm. of the people. So could you talk, uh, given that you are in contact with school districts and teachers and tell all the, all the teachers you're working with, could you talk a little bit about the needs um, that people might be having right now, either the needs of students in this particular moment in the districts that you're connected with or the needs of teachers that you're working with? And almost like, could you talk about the suffering that you're mm. bearing witness to for so that others could understand? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, most of my work right now is with is with school leaders. Um, uh, but obviously, you know, they're the they're the holders of all of this. Would leaders be like both admin and teachers? Like, yeah, the whole, uh-huh. and and I have a a, a a very wide definition of of a school leader, and so does tell for those of you that, you know, might want to explore this fellowship a little more. Um, it's really, um, anyone who has a particular sphere of power and circle of influence within a school community. And it can also be, you know, external service providers, you know, folks at CBOs or nonprofits, but anyone who is doing the work of trying to, um, wake up our schools, which is, you know, it's funny that, that, the Thich Nhat Hanh, um, mindfulness and education work is actually called wake up schools, but it's anyone who is really involved in this work of, um, of, of, of creating, you know, co- a more collective awakening and consciousness shifting through schools. Um, and I'd say that there are several needs, but one that has been coming up a lot is just needing time pre pandemic you know, and I'm sure it's it's probably exacerbated now, um, teachers made more decisions during the course of the workday than any other profession except surgeons. And so I'd say, that's why you're so exhausted at the end of the day. And, um, and, you know, I'd say school leaders, like the amount, the amount of decisions that have to be made and knowing that your decisions like impact the lives of others is just, it's a lot to hold. And so given that, um, being able to have adequate time to resource ourselves so we can be in a more solid whole place to make those decisions from is really vital. Um, And so I hear a lot that just folks are just feeling like bombarded and overwhelmed and like there's, you know, just so much that they're holding. And so I think I think we have to kind of look deeply around um, like what really matters, what do we have to hold on to and what can we let go of in this moment, both like in terms of our structurally in terms of our schools, in terms of content, um, in terms of like uh, deliverables, like what, what do we have to hold on to and what can, what can we let go of? Um, and I'm seeing 
that, um, you know, the, the lack of time and the kind of decision, uh, just the so, so many decisions, it's just kind of like an, it's an overwhelm. But what I've experienced, you know, with the, the power of the practice and, and having to hold a lot is the more that we can cultivate a spaciousness within, the more that we're able to hold. And I'd say that kind of goes back to what my teacher Larry talks about, you know, that the practice now is about enhancing our nervous systems to hold greater complexity and uncertainty, but to be able to, to also hold both the, both the pain and the possibility. Because there's a lot of excitement in this moment too, that we can shift, that we can, you know, and that's a lot of what we're trying to do and tell and dream up a new way of being and doing when it comes to education. Um, you know, we don't have to be boxed in into this old way of doing it hasn't been working clearly. I mean, all the pandemic did was it like revealed what we already knew <laughs> was there in terms of like how ineffective things were and, and the deep inequities. Um, and also, you know, we don't yet know like what the, the world we're preparing our students for. So given that, what do they need to be equipped with? Mm. You know, what do they need to be equipped with? And I'd say that, um, being able to know who they are and have a sense of agency and to um, be an active member of their community are all key things that we want them to walk away with. And so, um, you know, other, other needs, I think, actually think they speak to um, one of the greatest things that like a, a spiritually oriented life can give us, which is like, meaning and connection to something greater. Um, and um, I think that's why we're seeing so many educators now in particular. Um, you know, I feel like mind mindfulness is like the gateway, the entry point um, for a lot of that deeper work. Do you share the assessment that this period of time will have a negative impact on, on youth? and students. And I ask, cause I'm hearing, I feel like more and more reporting, uh, from people who are saying, wow, the costs are really starting to show up interviewing educators or, um, educational leaders. And I'm just wondering how you're thinking about it. I, I see you as someone who's very clear eyed in your assessments, but also an optimist. Um, and I'm wondering, how are you, what do you think? Well, the first thing I want to say is let's all take the long view. That's the first thing I want to keep in mind. You know, there's, um, uh, that's really, really important for any of us, any of us engaged in this work is to, is to take the long, the long view. Um, and obviously you can't dispute the data that's coming out on the impact that the pandemic has had, um, there could also just be like a, a lot more reporting now as well, but I know like the standard, um, you know, reporting that's done with, with some of the, the schools and districts I'm connected with, um, definitely um, this is, this is taking a toll because you take people um, away from, from, you know, their connections with friends, um, a sense of like routine, um, you know, so much. I mean, it's definitely going to, going to have an impact. And, oh my goodness, I haven't seen schools prioritize social and emotional learning more in my entire life. 
So I think that we have to also like, you know, take the long view and see like, whoa, finally, like high schools who, you know, are the last ones to get on the, the SEL bandwagon are saying that this is our number one priority. So I think this is also um, a historic moment where things can shift and we can focus on what really, really matters in education. Um, you know, there's a there's a great story. Um, I, I saw this documentary and then I also read it in, I'm sure you've, you're familiar with Kazuhaga's work in his book, um, Healing Resistance, but um, I believe it's Megalaya where they have these um, these trees that um, the roots make these bridges, but they take forever to build. And so it's this sense of like, you're doing your part in making the bridge and you may not see the, the full bridge complete, um, but we're all doing our part. Um, and so I think to stay, to stay in this work, we have to have the long view and remember as Ty so beautifully says, um, when you take care of the present moment, you also take care of the next moment, the future, right? You take, you're taking care of the future when you're taking care of the present moment. So as long as we can stay solid in our practice and not get caught up in the frenzy and be a source of solidity and compassion for others when we're sharing mindfulness, um, we're taking care of the present moment and we're planting seeds and we're having that long view for beautiful flowers to bloom. Anything that we didn't cover that you want to speak to? Oh, please. Yeah, yeah, I did want to mention two more things, David, and maybe that they probably wouldn't be in this. They pro- probably would want to. I did want to mention that, you know, the the lineage of, of Thich Nhat Hanh and, and these particular, you know, the, the way in which mindfulness um, has been transmitted to me, you know, it comes from this lineage that was born from the trauma of the Vietnam War. And so... Not everyone has that context, but that these practices um, uh, were born from great suffering and with a great intention to heal during a traumatic time. And in a way, um, these practices are timeless, given that. so. Do you want to say anything about TELL or how people can reach you and, and your work? Yeah. Well, if folks want to go deeper in understanding um, social emotion learning and mindfulness and service of belonging, um, you could check out my website, ninasrinimasan.com. There's a lot of free resources um, and have two online courses there um, that are really geared towards ones for educators and ones for anyone who is doing the work of um, teaching mindfulness and social emotional learning. Um, to young people or working with schools or school districts or organizations doing that. And then our Transformative Educational Leadership Fellowship applications have just opened. And um, it's uh, it's a really powerful experience. And so I invite you, if you're, if you're curious, you don't have to be a school leader. You have to be, you know, a someone who is engaged in this work and wants to contribute in a big way um, to check out our website, teleadership.org. And yeah, that's it. Well, thanks, Mina. Thanks for being here. Thanks for your work. And I'm sure that we'll, um, we'll talk again sometime soon. Thank you, David. 
It's been an honor to be in conversation with you um, and wishing you well and also um, sending blessings to all of your listeners. Thanks. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Mina for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Mina's work, you can go to the episode page on my website and we put some links there. And if you have any requests of topics you'd like us to cover or people you'd like us to talk to, please email us at support at davidtrelevin.com. If you're interested in learning more about trauma-sensitive mindfulness work, you can find more information on my website at davidtrelevin.com. Hope you're doing well out there and talk to you soon.